Well, Jonah chapter 4. We are journeying through Jonah. And here's what we've seen so far. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the prophet, and said, Arise and go to Nineveh and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And so Jonah, the prophet of God, arose and went the other direction. He didn't go east. He went west. He's fleeing from the presence of God, wants to get as far away as he can from Nineveh and even from the presence of the Lord. So he goes down to Joppa, gets on the slow boat to Tarshish. But Jonah learns a lesson. You can't run from God. You try to run from him, you run into him. And while he's on this boat, God sends a strong wind. God hurls a strong wind right at that ship. And uh, at the end of the day, Jonah is thrown overboard, facing certain death by drowning. But again, God surprises Jonah and everyone else by appointing a great fish to swallow him up, keep him alive for three days and three nights. And then God commands that fish to vomit Jonah out on dry ground. And then God gives Jonah a second chance. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, and proclaim to it the proclamation that I'm going to give you. And this time Jonah complies. He goes to Nineveh, preaches a five-word sermon, and the whole city repents. The whole city, from the least to the greatest, turn from their wicked ways and turn to God. 120,000 people repent. And that gets us through the end of chapter 3. And it's been pointed out before that if the book of Jonah ended at the end of chapter 3, then Jonah would go down as the greatest prophet of all time. He would be right up there with Moses. He would be in the prophet hall of fame. But that's not how the story ends. We have chapter 4. And we've seen before that the book of Jonah is full of surprises. And, you know, read it again for the first time. Read it with fresh eyes. Now, forget everything you think you know about Jonah. If you read it for the first time, there's all kinds of unexpected plots and twists. Didn't see that coming. Didn't see that coming. Well, that was a surprise. And here's another surprise. Jonah goes to Nineveh, preaches, the whole city repents, and we would expect that the prophet of God would celebrate. Hallelujah, look what God has done. But that's not what we get. Instead, Jonah gets mad. And Jonah just sulks. And Jonah has a little pity party, as we want to see in chapter 4. And so we have this, this surprise that, that, that the prophet of God, rather than celebrating, is just burning mad. And for Jonah, this whole thing is just wrong. From beginning to end, it is all wrong. This is just messed up. This ain't right. It's, it's, it's not right that I had to come all the way out here and preach to these people. It's not right that I had to preach to these people, of all people, the Ninevites. It ain't right that they repented, and it sure ain't right that God would relent from the destruction that he has proclaimed over them. It just ain't right. It is messed up. It is altogether wrong. Well, we're going to find out this morning, well, Jonah's the one that's wrong. Jonah is the one that's messed up. Jonah, is, he, he's a mess. And so let's take a look. And we're going to see in our, in our passage this morning a lot of irony. In fact, I almost call this message bitter irony because it just drips with bitter irony uh, in one way after another. So if you have your bulletin, there's a listening guide on the back panel. Let's start, first of all, that God turns from his anger. When God turns from his anger, Jonah turns to his anger. When God's anger was averted, Jonah's anger was incited. God turns from his anger, and that makes Jonah mad. He turns to his anger. In verse chapter 3 and verse 9, the king of Nineveh says you know, to his people, who knows, God may turn and relent, withdraw his burning anger, so that we will not perish. The people of Nineveh were facing the wrath of God. 
But when they repented, they turned from their wickedness in repentance, God relented of the disaster that he was going to bring upon them, and so God's anger was averted. And this makes Jonah mad. So his anger now is inside it. Now there's a play on words that kind of gets lost in translation, but I want you to see this. In chapter 1 and verse 2, go back to the beginning of Jonah, in chapter 1 and verse 2, it says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. That word wickedness translates the Hebrew word ra'ah. And I'll put this on your bulletin, on your outline. Ra'ah. Ra'ah shows up a lot in the Hebrew Old Testament. It shows up, it's, it's primarily used in, in, in a couple of ways, one or two ways. It can be a moral term describing evil, sin, wickedness, depravity. Or it can be an amoral term where it's not sin and wickedness but disaster, calamity. Things that cause harm or injury, uh, misfortune, trouble, that way. And it's used both ways in this text. So here, God says, their wickedness, their uh, their evil, their depravity, their wickedness has come up before me. Now, we move on down in verse 7. We're on the ship, and, and the men on the ship are saying, each man to his mate, come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. That's the word. Calamity, that's the word ra'ah. So here it's not about wickedness and depravity. It's a disaster. It's a calamity. Whose fault is this? We're, uh, we're going to lose our ship. And uh, whose fault is it? Now we move down to chapter 3 and verse 8. The king of Nineveh says to his people, Let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way. That's the adjectival form of ra'ah. Wicked, sinful, depraved way. And then we hear it again in verse 10. God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way. Again, same word, ra'ah, their evil, wicked, depraved ways. And God relented concerning the calamity. Well, guess what? That's ra'ah again. So God relented from his evil, the calamity, the disaster that he was going to bring upon them. So the ra'ah of Nineveh has come before God. The king tells his people, turn away from your ra'ah. When God saw that the Ninevites turned from their ra'ah, he turned from his ra'ah. And now in chapter 4 and verse 1, it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. The word displeased is the verb form of ra'ah. And it means to, to, to be sinful, to be evil, to do injury, to cause harm. And so now... It greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. We could put it this way. It was evil. I mean, you could read the Hebrew this way. It was evil to Jonah with great evil. That's how it looks. It was evil to Jonah with great evil. The Ninevites turned from their evil. God turned from his evil, and it was evil to Jonah with great evil. (laughs) Or the fact that God did not do evil to Nineveh, was evil to Jonah with great evil. Or the fact that God did not visit calamity upon Nineveh was itself a calamitous calamity to Jonah. That's the idea. This is ironic, isn't it? Let's keep reading. It greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Now notice that Jonah is angry. We heard it two times. In verse 1, he became 
angry. You hear it again in, in verse 4. Do you have good reason to be angry? And the word for angry there, it's, it means to be hot. You ever said this? That just burns me up. You ever said that? To burn up with anger. He is burning mad. He is hot with anger. He's angry at God. Now let me ask you a question. Be honest, you're in church. Have you ever been angry at God? You ever been mad because God didn't do what you thought God was supposed to do? You did what you were supposed to do, but then God doesn't seem to hold up his end of the bargain, and life doesn't turn out the way you thought it was supposed to turn out, and you got mad at God? Here's one thing Jonah does get right. Here's one thing we can take away from Jonah. Here's a good example. When Jonah was mad at God, he prayed. And that's what it says in verse 2. He became angry, and he prayed to the Lord. When you're mad at God, pray. Well, I just don't know if I should pray when I'm angry. Well, that's probably when you need to pray the most. You can pray and tell the Lord. You can be honest with God. Now, be humble. Don't get too big for your britches. That won't help you. <laughs> you can be humble, but you can be honest with God. God already knows. You're not going to surprise him. You're not going to shock him. He already knows who you are, where you are, what you are. He already knows, but you can be honest with him. So Jonah, at least he gets that much right. He's angry, and so he prays and he talks to the Lord. So when you're mad, talk to the Lord. Pray to God. Now, again, to Jonah, this is all wrong. This is messed up. But we're going to see Jonah's the one who's messed up. Jonah's the one who's wrong. And God's going to ask him, do you have good reason to be angry? Do you have a right to be this angry? And we'll, we'll explore that more next time around. Here's another irony. What should make Jonah happy makes him miserable. That's ironic. What should make him happy makes him miserable. What should be perceived as a great success, Jonah sees as a catastrophic failure. Jonah is a prophet. What do prophets do? Prophets proclaim the message of God. That's the job description. You proclaim God's message, proclaim God's truth. And so Jonah, the prophet, has actually done that. Now, we had that hiccup, kind of had a false start. You know, we had that hiccup at the beginning. But we've got that straightened out now. And Jonah now does go to Nineveh, and he does the job, and he proclaims the message of God. Now, right there, we can stop right there and say that's success. Now, by the way, we ought to give props where props are due. Give credit where credit is due. Jonah actually did it. And you think about it, this took great courage for Jonah. The Ninevites are his enemy. They are famously cruel. They are known for their violence. This would be scary business for Jonah to go there. And the fact that he did go to Nineveh, man, he's going into, he's going into the snake's den. And that would take great courage. And so he actually did it. Just imagine if God told somebody today, I want you to go and preach the gospel to Hamas. Huh. Well, you know who they are and what they do. Are you serious? Bad things could happen. Or go to, go to Tehran or go to North Korea. Go to some, some regime, some country where they hate Christians and persecute Christians and preach the gospel. Well, Lord, you know what could happen to me there? That's, that's Jonah's boat. He's going to Nineveh, people who are famously cruel, and he proclaims the message of God. So credit to where credit is due. He actually did. And at this point, we could say that's success. He did what he was told to do. Now, what's this got to do with you and me? God has told you and me, I want you to go and tell them about me. Go and share the gospel. Preach the gospel to every creature. Make disciples of all the nations. You're my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. 
And to the degree that you do that, you're successful. Without respect to the earthly temporal results. Maybe you've tried sharing the gospel with a friend or family member, co-worker. You tried sharing the gospel. Man, it didn't go good. You know, they weren't buying what I was selling. In fact, they kind of laughed at me or they got mad at me. And, you know, I guess I'm a failure. I just can't do that. And uh, The professionals are going to have to do all the witnessing. No, no, no. You share the gospel as winsomely as possible in the power of the Holy Spirit, and you leave the results to God. And if they pray to receive Christ, they get saved. Hallelujah. But you don't get to take the credit. You didn't save them. All you did was share the word. Or if they reject Christ, you don't take the blame. (laughs) It's between them and the Lord. You share the gospel. You proclaim the message. You've done what you're supposed to do. And now the rest is between them and the Lord. Think about Jeremiah. Jeremiah preached to God's people for 40 years and had nothing to show for it. At the end of a 40-year ministry, he had nothing to show for it. Just maybe a handful of friends and supporters. Do you think he was a failure? I don't think so. I think God's going to measure Jeremiah as a faithful servant. So obedience is the standard. That said, holy cow, look at the results. (laughs) Jonah goes to Nineveh, preaches, and 120,000 people, pagans no less, repent, turn from their wickedness and turn to God. What preacher, what prophet, what missionary would not want to have those results? I mean, all the other prophets would be coming to Jonah and say, dude, what's your secret? You know, I want to sit at your feet. What can you teach me? Jonah could write books, you know, how-to books, you know, prophet for dummies. You know, he could, he could write books. He could have seminars. He would be a rock star on the prophet-speaking circuit. I got to tell you, I'm a little jealous. I wish I could preach this, sun, this Sunday, this sermon, this day, and 120,000 Clark's billions turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. I would like to have those results. You would think this is the best day in Jonah's life, the the greatest day in his ministry. Not for Jonah. It's a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. It's the worst day of his ministry, the worst day of his life, because these folks repented and God relented, and now God's not going to destroy them and wipe them off the face of the earth. In fact, in verse 2, he says, He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. I mean, this is why I left. Back in chapter 1, remember it's a book of surprises if you don't already know the story. In chapter 1, the the word of the Lord came to the prophet, said, Arise, go to Nineveh. He arose and went the other way. What? Wait, what? The prophet did what? He's supposed to go to Nineveh. That's what we expected. But he mysteriously, strangely disobeys and goes the other way. Now we know why. At the end of the story, now we see. Why did he get up and go to Joppa to get on a boat to Tarshish? Why is he fleeing from the presence of the Lord? He said, this is exactly what I was afraid of. I just figured this is what would happen. I'd come over here and preach to these people. They would repent, and knowing God for who he is, God is just like God to forgive them and show them mercy and not destroy them. This is exactly what I was afraid would happen. And so now Jonah feels vindicated in his disobedience. This is, this is what I thought. This is what I was afraid of from the very beginning. So what, what, what should be a celebration is for him a cause of, of consternation and frustration. Well, here's another irony. Earlier, Jonah wanted to live. He was glad to be alive. And now he wants to die. 
Back in chapter 2, you remember, he's thrown overboard. He's sinking like a rock, and as his life flashes before his eyes, he cries out to God. God appoints a great fish to swallow him up. <laughs> and, and after spending some time in the belly of the fish, Jonah figures out, hey, I'm not dead, <laughs> and, and God is actually saving my life. And in chapter 2, we hear Jonah wants to be alive. He cries out to God to save his life, and when he realizes God is delivering him, all of chapter 2 is a psalm of thanksgiving. Thankful to be alive. Hallelujah, God has saved me. I'm not dead. So he's grateful to be alive. But now, in chapter 3, after Nineveh repents and God relents, in chapter 3, he says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life for me, for death to me is better than life. Lord, just kill me. It's them or me. (laughs) If you're not going to kill them, then kill me. I would rather die than to see them live. Now that's kind of messed up, isn't it? That's all wrong. That's just messed up. This guy's got issues. Well, there's at least two issues we can identify. Here's Jonah's two problems that we know of. One is hatred. He hates these people. He hates the Assyrians. He wants God's judgment on these people. He wants them destroyed. He wants them dead. He hates them. And he has lost all perspective because of that hatred. You know what the same thing can happen to you and to me? When you are full of bitterness, resentment, somebody done you wrong, and you can't forgive them, you won't forgive them, and you are angry and you're bitter toward that person, you resent them, or some group of people, when your heart is full of hatred, it will warp your perspective. It will poison your heart. And it will distort the way you see God, the way you see life, the way you see people. It will warp your perspective. It will it'll, it'll poison everything. It's why the Bible warns over in, in the book of Hebrews, warns us Christians, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Hatred, bitterness, resentment, it will poison you. Here's another issue that Jonah has, self-centeredness. And we've seen this before, self centeredness we heard it in chapter two i me and my i me and my i me and my all through that psalm of thanksgiving here it is again in in chapter four in this two verse prayer in the original language in this two verse prayer we have nine personal pronouns in two verses i and me i and me i me and my it's it's just it's that same problem self-centeredness jonah lives in a very small world it's the world of jonah (laughs) it's all about jonah And we already saw the self-centered life is the recipe for a miserable life. It's it's the recipe for an empty life. The self-centered life is an empty life. Self-centered people are miserable people. Hate-filled people are miserable people. Hate-filled, self-centered people are the most miserable people. They're miserable to be around. You ever known somebody like that? Angry, bitter, resentful, mad at God, mad at the world, mad at everybody, and it's all about them. And they live in this tiny little bubble. They are miserable, and they are miserable to be around. That's Jonah, and that can be you and me. We're susceptible too. Be careful. Watch out. Well, this guy's got issues. (laughs) Here's another irony. The one who received God's grace now resents God's grace toward others. 
That's irony. That's ironic. The one who received God's grace now resents God's grace toward others. God has been gracious with Jonah. The word of the Lord comes to the prophet, arise and go to Nineveh, and the prophet of God says, no, I don't want to, and you can't make me. God could have killed him right then and there. You don't tell me no. Boom. You know, hey, God could have killed him right then and there. He could have let him drown when he was thrown overboard. But instead, God appointed a fish and saved his life. God gave him a second chance in chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Let's try this again. Go to Nineveh and proclaim the proclamation I'm giving to you. God has been gracious with Jonah. God's being patient with Jonah now. I don't know about you, but I'm starting to lose my patience. I'm getting a little perturbed with him kind of want to thump him between the eyes. Dude, what's your problem? Wake up. I'm getting frustrated with him, but God has been gracious with him. In fact, in verse 2, he says, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? In order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious. The word to know there is a, an experiential knowledge. It's a knowledge that comes from firsthand experience. It's a knowledge you, know, it's a knowledge you have because you've been there, done that. I knew that you are gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. God, I knew this about you because this has been my experience of you in my life. I know this is the kind of God you are. I have known that. And he was afraid that the Ninevites might know him or experience him that way as well. He knows this about God. Um, That's messed up. Why would somebody who has experienced God's grace resent God's grace toward others? Why would someone who has experienced God's mercy resent God's mercy toward someone else? That's messed up. That's all wrong. That ain't right. What is that? But you know that's not unique to Jonah, and it's not new. We can go to the New Testament. In many of the Lord's parables, Jesus' parables, they are about God's grace, our misconceptions of grace, our discomfort with God's grace. For example, in Matthew 18, we have the parable of the unmerciful servant. The punchline of that parable is that those who have been forgiven ought to turn around and forgive. Those who have experienced grace ought to show grace. Those who have received mercy ought to show mercy to others. But in the parable of the unmerciful servant, we've kind of all been the unmerciful servant at one time or another, having a hard time showing grace, mercy, and forgiveness toward other people. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells the parable of the laborers. Where these laborers show up in the vineyard at different points in the day, at the end of the day, they all get paid the same. And that smacks, that rubs against our notion of fairness. That ain't fair. You know, the people at the end of the day shouldn't get paid what the people at the beginning of the day got paid. And it's not about Fair Labor's, you know, Standards Act. That's not what that parable is about. The parable is about God's grace. And we tend to put ourselves in the early laborers. We deserve better. But the punchline is that we are all the late arrivers. We don't deserve better. We don't deserve what we got. It's all God's grace. We are all the late arrivers. But, I mean, we all tend to resent those who showed up late, and and we think we deserve better. Again, it, it confronts us with grace and what grace looks like. In Luke chapter 15, we have the parable of the prodigal son. You know the story. Certain men had two sons. Younger son took the inheritance, went off, wasted it, came back home. The father restored him. But you remember a certain man had two sons. The older son is sitting out on the porch, and he's all mad and sulky and pouty. You never gave me a party. I've been here slaving for you all these years. You never gave me a kid to party with my friends. And the older brother resents the father's grace toward the younger brother. Punchline of the parable, we've all been the older brother sitting on the porch, sulking 
because God was gracious towards someone else. Sometimes we're more like Jonah than we want to admit, don't we? So here, Jonah resents God's grace towards someone else. It doesn't make sense that someone who has received grace would resent grace when someone else receives it, that someone who has experienced mercy would then resent God's mercy towards someone else. That doesn't make sense. (laughs) That's wrong. That's messed up. That ain't right. Here's another irony. Jonah was theologically accurate, but he was totally wrong about God. Theologically accurate, but he was wrong about God. In chapter two, in verse 2, he says, I know that you're gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents concerning the calamity. That description of God shows up about nine times in the Old Testament. And the first time is with Moses on the mountain. You remember the story where Moses says, Lord, show me, please, your glory. And God says, can't do that, it'd kill you. But here's what I'll do. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover your eyes. I'll cause my glory to pass by. Then I'll let you see the hind parts of my glory. And as God did that, God declared himself. He revealed his character. And these are the terms that he used. This is who I am. This is what I am like. And then this, this, this description gets used several times in the Old Testament. God is gracious. That is to say he's merciful. He's kind. He shows grace. God is compassionate. That comes from the word for womb. God is compassionate like a mother is to her nursing child or a father is to his young child. And that grace, graciousness and compassionate together, that, that, that says that God seeks to sustain life and preserve life. God is slow to anger. He is patient, long-suffering, loving-kindness. That's that word kessed. We've talked about that many times before. God's loyal, faithful, committed, covenant love, a, stick, a sticky love that binds his heart to his people. And then God relents concerning calamity. We talked about that. That's in chapter 3. God relented concerning the calamity that he was going to bring upon the Ninevites. This is who God is. God leans toward forgiveness. Jonah's frustration is God is not playing by Jonah's rules. <laughs> God's not doing what Jonah thinks God ought to do. You ever get frustrated when God doesn't play by your rules? When God doesn't do what you think God's supposed to be doing? This is what makes him mad. But notice, Jonah is right about the character of God. This description, it's exactly right. It's exactly what God said about himself. Anytime you agree with God, you're on safe ground. You're probably right. Okay? So he's, he's right about God, but he has no concept of the heart of God. He's totally wrong about the heart of God. I don't know about you, but I've known a lot of people like that through the years. A lot of preachers like that. A lot of folks who, man, they they know a lot about God. Man, they've got their theology buttoned down tight. It's airtight. They've got their systems and they've got their doctrines and they can quote this theologian and that doctrine and they know this passage and this argument and they can go all day long and yet there's really no love for God, no love for people. No love for the lost, no grace, no mercy, no compassion, just a cold, dead orthodoxy, sometimes an angry orthodoxy. Now, you need to have sound doctrine. You need to know what you believe and why you believe it and a biblical basis for why you believe what you believe. You need to have good theology based on God's Word, not what you think about God, but what the Bible says about God. You need to have sound doctrine and sound theology, but if you have all that and you miss the heart of God... All that theology is not going to help you very much. Here's what, here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. 
So even if you got God all figured out and all the mysteries, and of course you never would, you never can, but if you had it all figured out without love, it's, it's useless. It's no good. That's kind of where Jonah is. Well, how many times are we like Jonah? Modern day Jonas. Sometimes we get mad because we think somebody somewhere might be getting away with something. That's, that's Jonah. The Ninevites are getting away with it. God's being merciful, and they're getting away with something, and it makes Jonah mad. Have you ever felt that way? Listen, you just leave judgment to God. That's his department. You just leave it with the Lord. God keeps score better than you can, and God will settle the scores. You just let God take care of that. You just, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Let, let God take care of judgment. Or sometimes we can be like Jonah, we get all self-centered and have self-pity, have a little pity party. And we get all mad and pouty and I didn't get my way. You know, we, we all do that, don't we? Do this. We all do that. Sometimes we do it at church. And God can be at, at work at church and people are being saved and lives changed and disciples made and, and the presence of God is here. And yet, I guarantee you, there's somebody somewhere going, they didn't do what I thought. I don't like the way they're doing And they're just frustrated and pity part. So sometimes we can be just like that, can't we? Or, or, we love God's grace when it's coming our way. Amazing grace, how sweet that sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Oh, we, we celebrate God's grace, but then somebody over here, a little sketchy, and they get saved, and we go, oh, I don't know about that. I don't know about that dude. I know who he is. I know where he comes from. I know, what, I know his past. I know what she's like. You don't know. If you only knew about her what I know about her, I, I don't know about that. I'm not sure they deserve grace. Did you hear that? Folks, nobody deserves grace. That's a contradiction in terms. They don't deserve grace like I deserve grace. I deserve grace. No, grace is undeserved. We all deserve death and judgment. Grace is what none of us deserves. You don't want God to give you what you deserve. You want grace and mercy. Sometimes we can be like Jonah. Or we can have sound theology and no love. We can be zealous for our theological system but no zeal for God. Or again, even angry about our system. Oh, be careful. You remember the old seatbelt commercials? You can learn a lot from a dummy. <laughs> well, Jonah, bless his heart, he can teach us a lot. Don't be a modern-day Jonah. Here's the heart of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death for every one of us. You have sinned, I have sinned, you are condemned in your sins, I'm condemned in my sins. There's none righteous, no, not one. We don't deserve grace, we deserve death and hell and the judgment of God. Every one of us. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. And God doesn't want you to perish. He wants you to repent and believe, and be saved, and be forgiven. He wants to give you new life. He wants you and his family. He wants you to be with him forever, but you must repent and believe. Have you done that? Have you turned from your sins, put your faith in Jesus Christ? If not, that's your greatest need. I invite you to come to Jesus this morning. Say yes to him. 
in a moment we're going to stand up and sing. I'll be here. I invite you to come to me and say, Preacher, I need Jesus or I want to be saved, however you want to say it. And we'd love to talk with you privately and pray with you if you'd like to. And you could leave here today knowing your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home and Jesus is your Savior. Say yes to Jesus Christ. Or perhaps you need to be, be baptized like, like earlier. We can talk about that. Or if you want to join the church, we can talk about that. Or if you need to pray with somebody, we'd love to pray with you. But whatever God is saying to you, you say yes to him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving for us Jonah and, uh, and his ups and downs. Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us to see the Jonah in us and uh, that we can learn a lot from, from this prodigal prophet. God, I pray for the one who's never been saved and help them to hear and know they need Jesus Christ. They must be born again. And Lord, bring them to the cross even today. Just take charge of this time of decision. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.